Please pronounce your name correctly for me. Uh, Ilana Katz, <laughs> or Katz, actually. Well, that's how it is in the U.S. But in living in Germany, I've gotten used to Katz. <laughs> well, and that's one of the things. So you're from the United States, but you're living currently in Berlin. Mm-hmm. So w- tell me, about when did you move from the U.S. and sort of why? I moved actually in 2008. I I came for graduate school. I had finished studying in New York. I went to Parsons School of Design, the new school. And then, yeah, I had this really fantastic opportunity to study at the UDK, the, the University of the Arts in Berlin. And so I came directly after finishing university in New York. And I didn't think at all about how long I would stay. I didn't have any plans. And also afterwards, I didn't really decide, okay, I'm staying here long term. But it all happened very naturally that, you know, I finished there in 2010 and I've been based in Berlin ever since. How did you even become creative at all? Like, so I, you know, I always wonder how people who choose to be creative in their life, how did they even get into that? Uh, so, parents were creative, or did you have good teachers, or did you have some great life experience in your youth that sort of led you down the path to become a creative person? Well, I did come from a family, I do come from a family in the arts. My parents are classical musicians. And so, yeah, I think that this has really influenced also in the sense that a respect for creativity is in the family, you know. And I was a classical ballerina in my childhood. So this was, I never had any interest in making music, but the way that I interacted with (laughs) and was in dialogue with the music of my family and of my parents was always through dance. It was very, very natural for me always to move with the body. Not words. Not Words are really not my thing. <laughs> but I have a lot to say. So I, I danced until 13 years old. The field is, you know, pretty, um, yeah, like um, it can be psychologically quite abusive, let's say. And so I quit. And from there, it was just a natural development that I went into the visual arts, but it was quite a bit later, you know, it was, there were five or six years in between there, wait, five or six, no, maybe a bit less, like two or around two or three years in between where, okay, I got into visual arts and then I was studying photography at the new school and by the end of my time at the new school, I was I actually finished with a performance, with a live performance, because I had been shooting in the studio, doing these very conceptual photography projects, uh, working with the body, either with my body or with the body of others. And so it was very performative. And then when I performed right at the end of my studies there, it was really, it was so clear that I had absolutely found the most complete, the most whole means of expression for me because it was, you know, conceptual art that's very critically, you know, critically has something. It's vocal in a way, but not, yeah, with the voice necessarily, critically active and with use of the body and the kind of, yeah, the engagement, the energy of the of the live 
work and also this topic of pushing the body to its limitations, understanding where the borders, where the boundaries are, that already was so natural to me as this had already been part of my childhood. And so, yeah, since then, performance has really been essential, has been the primary medium. Okay, I really want you to go back a step and give me, let's assume that the listeners maybe don't have quite a robust vocabulary as either you or I when it comes to the arts. So define conceptual work through your definition of it. Well, there is a particular concept that is communicated through, in my work, in my practice, whatever medium is most appropriate, is most uh, fitting, you know? And so I work with concepts that are sometimes very abstract, but then sometimes also something really like looking at uh, instances of historical erasure, locations where, you know, dealing with the topics of memory, of post-memory, of national histories, of collective memory, of erasure, of collective memory. Sometimes it's these concepts that are very defined, and sometimes it's something more abstract and maybe even allegorical or, or something like this. But it, there, there is a critical component, critical voice component. Well, that's the thing is, is like, I find that oftentimes the general viewer of works mixes up the words or the ver the vernacular for abstract and conceptual. They, mm -hmm. they either put them together or they don't understand the difference between them. So I'm just trying to mm -hmm. define that for your work. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, I haven't, believe it or not, I haven't been asked this question before. <laughs> In Europe, the word conceptual is very well known and, ve and very much used. In America, it's oftentimes a bit of a dirty word. It's it's basically like, I mean, I come from a new genre background and we use the term conceptual quite a lot, but it's not as widely as accepted as it certainly is in Europe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I also have lost the sense of context with the US quite a bit, actually, having been away for so long, but that's one of the reasons why I'm not there, I guess. <laughs> um, me too. I mean, I left, <laughs> yeah. I left in... 2012 is when I left the United States and haven't lived back there since. Mm -hmm. I was in the Middle East for uh, six years and now in Europe as well. So I totally understand the desire to not be in America at this point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You mentioned words. Now I'm uh, uh, on the record saying I hate in the arts how it's become very, very important to be able to write artist statements and sort of put text to works. So how do you do that? Because your work is very, I mean, it's performative and it's all these kinds of things that are sort of the antithesis of all this, but you still exist in the arts world and I'm sure they still expect you to do some written text as well. Words are not my preferred medium. I do feel as though words sort of inevitably must reduce the the reality of what we experience and what existence you know is however i'm quite attached to them and i studied uh, um, parallel to photography i studied literature and i wanted actually to write but usually i like to write to write about my work to write a statement even if it's very very short and i don't like the statements to tell people exactly what to think 
I like it more to refer to concepts, refer to topics, and provoke questions. I'm much more interested in the questions rather than the answers, you know, and invite interpretation. And so this sort of writing is something that I don't enjoy it. I often complain about it, but I take it on and I admit that I want to take it on. And the sort of writing that has really yeah, been <laughs> more frustrating or interfered maybe more with creativity is all of this uh, fundraising, all of the grant applications. And, you know, this is really, um, it's a very difficult position for artists to be in to have to market and, and, and sell the work in this way. And although it was sincere, it was always sincere what I was saying, but the... Oh, God, the pressures were really, no, it didn't have a good effect. <laughs> well, and that's sort of my next question. Now, keep in mind, I come from a photographic background primarily, and so I'm very much object-based artwork. So my knowledge of performance art is minimal at best, let's say. So bear with my ignorance when I ask <laughs> some pretty stupid questions of you. No, so, but well, one of the questions was is sort of how do you fund the, your project? So do you do residencies? Do you apply for grants? Like, so how do you even get these things off the ground when it comes to finding locations, finding money, finding time, finding whatever you need to produce your work? Yeah, I've worked in a few different ways, but I've done quite a bit of building my own infrastructures, actually, because I did a seven years, uh, a seven year project that was based in the Balkans, working in multiple yeah, Balkan countries where I was looking for locations of historical erasure and yeah, going into these topics of post memory and so forth. And so there... I completely built my own infrastructure in terms of finances, in terms of contacts, in terms of research, in terms of, I mean, uh, research outside of the art field, but also then in the contemporary art scene, everything. I built networks where I even would say that I, I lived in between Berlin and Belgrade or Berlin and Bucharest for some time. There was a huge amount of fundraising I have to, had to do for that project, which is primarily what I refer to when I talk about how exa exhausting and taxing fundraising can be. You used Indiegogo, correct? Yeah, exactly. I did one fundraising campaign. What is it called? Crowdfunding. Yeah, I did one of those, which was successful. And it was like really, really exhausting, practically gave me a nervous breakdown. But it resulted in <laughs> having the resources to do nearly everything I needed to do for this for a period of time. And from this, then also other funding came from embassies, from foundations, yeah, like Trust for Mutual Understanding Foundation in New York City, U.S. embassies, Israeli embassies, Goethe Institute financed a lot, uh, but it took a lot of time to get this going. So this was, these were the infrastructures that I really primarily built. But in addition, and I haven't done so many residencies. It's not really my thing. But of course, I've done, participated in exhibitions or festivals where one is invited, where everything is already in place. <laughs> but I've also initiated independent projects. And so it's always very different what resources you have to work with, what sort of pressures you're under. It's great. It can, it can really be like a lovely uh, relief to work with institutions or with galleries where things are financed. 
but I also will happily participate in like no budget or low budget projects if I really believe in what the artists and the curators and the people involved are doing. Sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> As I said, I don't know much about performance arts, uh, sort of the, the, the background of it, sort of the nuts and bolts of how it's produced. I mean, I've, you know, uh, been a, uh, audience member, I don't know, participant of, of a lot of, of uh, performance works over the years, but uh, like I've never actually pr participated in producing any. Um, so trying to figure out how they all work is very elusive to me. It's, uh, you know, it's like, to a certain extent, I, keep in mind, this podcast is called The Wise Fool, and there are many things I'm very knowledgeable mm -hmm. of, and there are many things I'm very stupid about. This was going to fall under one of my stupid things. So, like, how do you produce a, a income, basically, on on doing mm -hmm. this kind of work? Income, okay, yeah. I mean, I can also maybe give an example of how a performance is produced first. That would be excellent. Yeah. And then the income topic, yeah, that will come. <laughs> but for example, you know, running on empty was a site-specific performance that I did in Belgrade that was uh, took place in 2017. There was the period of research because I was researching the location and the history and conceptualizing the work where there was a lot of different collaborators and partners with that. So that needed to be financed, you know, that was financed as a residency where I needed also funds for, yeah, for equipment, for, yeah, for all of the, uh, the expenses, which were quite a lot. And then the concept of the performance came. And then it was a matter of, okay, I need the funds for camera team, for the equipment, for the assistance, for renting a car and uh, even a motorbike we had to have for that shoot. And then there is the post-production because, you know, these productions in public space and site-specific very complicated in dealing with traffic and dealing also with, okay, we weren't always so legal. We were breaking some laws and not really knowing what would happen. It was fantastic. <laughs> and then, and then there's the post-production. So then with all of this experience and the footage that it resulted in, I go back to Berlin. I work with a video editor in Berlin for that project. Uh, I worked with a fantastic sound designer and for one year we, we worked on a video that was produced. And now that video is another work in itself. It is not a documentation of the performance, but it even, works with distorting the performance creating a new video work so now that piece exists in a limited edition and uh, actually one of the editions was just sold to the museum of Sundsvall in Sweden and so that also now comes to the topic of <laughs> how do you earn a living I have a side job or no I have two side jobs actually but uh, sometimes when, when projects are well-financed, I can be paid for exhibitions, I can be paid for performances, I sell work, and I also have uh, sponsors, like private sponsors, who will, you know, contribute for certain projects, and that's it. But it's very, it's very unpredictable, and a lot of times, so it's, it's nothing consistent that one can count on. And a lot of times, when I do manage to raise funds for, if I have to raise the funds myself, I usually manage to raise funds. But I don't. I just cover it covers all the expenses, but I don't earn anything. 
you know. I do know. And and this is sort of the reason for this podcast, which is that I have been in academia for 15 or 20 years and I, re and I came out and now I'm part-time instead of full-time. And so I'm focusing a little bit more on producing art and being part of the arts world. And I realized I have no idea how it works. I've been off in my ivory tower and I, you know, how does it all work? So like, how do grants work in Europe these days, you know, cause 20 years ago they worked in a particular way and now they work very differently and funding resources and spaces and all these things have changed over the years. And so basically I'm coming at this from a, an avenue of sort of ignorance, trying to find how people are doing it now. And you seem to be doing it well, at least publicly, your CV is magnificent, you're <laughs> very active. You, you are, you know, you are, uh, very, very busy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I worked very hard to build all of that. And it's, it is difficult to explain exactly how it goes because the one thing I can say is that the only consistency you can count on is that there is always inconsistency and there's no protocol. And it's all, I mean, <laughs> you know, I do very few applications at this point. At this point, I will do applications when when I know already people who are involved with the projects. So it's pretty secure that I'll be granted something. But I focus more on the work at this point because I put so much work into building contacts and building support in the past. And now I can work more with invitations and with opportunities that come up that of course one has to work hard to follow to pursue but it's yeah it's more of that now oh yeah i've been hearing story upon story from people all over the world about network 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 and you know using the connections but using them of course not using them and putting air quotes on that like using them you know uh, mm -hmm. utilizing your connections to in you know forward your career in some way without being a person who manipulates or anything like that is very important in the arts world. You, you have to, because who, you know, seems to be the way to the next step. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, unfortunately it is, <laughs> it is that way, but I think that, yeah, I put a lot of, a lot, a lot of effort into this more, promoting and marketing projects and my work and in the past and at this point it's I don't I put more energy into the work itself because this is absolutely healthier and so well all that work is just starting to pay dividends and now you can actually focus more on the work and less on the marketing and the public relations and all that stuff yeah and work with the supporters that I already have yeah. yeah. Okay, great. You you mentioned something about documentation, and this is one of those things that I find unique to our times, which is that it's in a certain extent the documentation, so whether that's video, photo, or and or so and then how it's incorporated to social media and websites and things like this, in a large part has become very important to any form of art, but I would imagine to yours because only so many people are going to be able to be present at any performance, whether it's through physical space sizes or times or whatever. And that documentation often becomes the way that people relate to your work. Yeah, this is, yeah, this is an interesting topic because 
Yes. In some cases, I just have documentation of a performance. And it's a bit difficult sometimes to distinguish what is documentation and what is then, what then becomes a separate work on its own. But the way that I've come to define it and think of it is that the video works that are produced with the, with the subject matter of a live act focus are more interested actually in the distortion of the performance. And when it is not interested in a distortion in any way, I consider that more to be documentation. And so also very often there's objects that result, you know, from the performance that are produced maybe in some way. And so these are pieces to be later exhibited. But when I exhibit them, one needs some context. You know, I, I like to have some context when exhibiting them that's not just a description, you know, so to have some video clips or to have one image or to have some reference point of, okay, actually that live act is what gives these objects their, their value. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, I, I have like, there's uh, filmmakers who I work with, who I've come to trust, who I know that they will capture it in the way that I want to see it, you know. So working with camera and also working with editing. And so sometimes it's the objects themselves, the documentation, sometimes it's just the work. And sometimes it is, yeah, just a photograph maybe as a reference point. And how do you feel about that when it comes to social media and things along this line like your your website has beautiful images and lovely videos on it so like so the question is like a lot like i think back to like the 1960s when in like san francisco when there was a lot of uh, performative works and things like this that very few people engaged with at the time of the performance and the only things that do exist of them really are the photos or the films of them going on and so they you know over the years and over the decades those have become representative of the work yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the engagement of the live thing, you know, and the, the energy that is there in the room or in that public space or whatever it is, the dynamics between people, this is all something that is not reproducible and I have no interest in trying to reproduce it, you know, but something can be captured. And there are some cases when... I'm quite strict about this this idea that I don't like to repeat performances at all because this is I mean that turns it into a theater you know for me there's there's one concept that develops at one point in time it is done once <laughs> but there are there is one piece for example that is interactive where there's pillows of ice, you know, I'm, I'm lying there with uh, two pillows of ice. I'm on one of them. I set a timer for one hour. Then I'm, I put a sign next to me that says, come lie with me. And so anybody who's there is invited to come lie with me on the pillow of ice next to me for any period of time that they would like. It's fascinating. You know, it's really fascinating and it, and it deals also with pain because to hold ice, to touch ice is extremely painful. The, the way I came to this concept is learning about how they, they actually will prepare women for the pain of pregnancy by holding ice. <laughs> with this piece and also what, what remains from that piece is simply water, you know. So the photographs are important to communicate what happened, but also that's, that's one that I'm willing to repeat because as it's interactive, it is completely different every time.
I was doing some research on you and words like pain and violence and these kinds of things seem to come up again and again as topics that you work with. Mm -hmm. Where does that come from for you? Why, why do you feel the need to investigate those types of topics? Well, it's what grips me. Yeah, it's not a decision. It's simply what, what I, I need to do. <laughs> I mean, and in so many different ways, it's like in a social, on a social scale, in a national scale, and then also dealing with the body and maybe thinking of uh, understanding the body as a metaphorical site for space or for enclosed space or larger, you know, all of this. But it's not, it's really just that I follow basically where my work takes me. I don't decide where it will go. And this, the urgency to do this, to say something and to investigate. I like that you use the word investigate also. This topic has simply been there and something I've been really happy to dive into. <laughs> you use things like uh, the, the color red. You have scarification in some of your works. You, you have lots of sort of things that look like acts of pain, of violence, of, you know, all these kinds of different topics that seem to come up again and again. And it's just not a very common topic that I see made with a, a contemporary artwork. So I'm sort mm -hmm. of wondering, you know, where, maybe where does it come from for you? Because everybody has their, their demons. Everybody has their things. Like I used to be a drug addict. My dad is a priest, a minister, whatever. So like, <laughs> I've got my own demons. Don't, you know, don't kid yourself. So <laughs> it's the question of like, how do we, you know, as creative people, we want to work with our demons. We want to dance with them, but not have them control us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think making, producing creative work is exactly this. It's then it's not controlling you. Then it's actually like in an expression and in an inquiry and then it's changing also. Yeah, I mean, I it's it it's really difficult for me to say general things about my work, but if I look at certain projects, I can tell you where the where the ideas come from. But uh, you know, for example, okay, I, I was dealing very much like site specifically and looking at uh, living in Germany. It's a very hyper memorialized society, is what I always say. There's such a consciousness of history. There's actually very impressive education and awareness. And documentation, you know, and I was looking particularly at Jewish, uh, Jewish kind of uh, Jewish history that had been in one way or another erased from collective memory in societies moving further east. And this happened for a variety of complex, you know, historical reasons from like, you know, rebuilding socialist societies, also the Holocaust, also voluntary immigration to Israel. There's so many complex complex reasons, but I was just fascinated at these instances of erasure, of erased memory, and then particularly uh, erased locations, because many of these locations have sort of given testimony to a subculture having been there once that no longer exists, and with the erasure of the location, it allows for the erasure from the collective memory, or it contributes to that. And so I, was, I wanted to look into this void. And what I found there is, okay, I was dealing with, I was looking at histories that involve violence and conflict, and then the contemporary realities that are shaped by those histories 
where people are not often aware of it. Uh, to cultivate a consciousness of the presence of absence, that was very important for me in that project, the consequences of these things. And so there it was working with locations. And then I was working with my body, you know, for example, this piece where I cut a barcode into my chest with a razor blade. The, the, the idea for this performance, it came during that time that I was traveling in the Balkans, doing this research, confronting very difficult pasts, investigating very complicated uh, presents. And it was infinitely complex and difficult. And I started to feel as though my body was a canvas that was sort of, yeah, I mean, I started to feel as though my body reflected, actually, these circumstances of violence and its consequences that were surrounding me. And I had the idea to cut this barcode into my chest with a razor blade to turn my body into a landscape of trauma as a canvas that is reflecting or and referencing the landscapes of trauma that were surrounding me geographically and historically, which is everywhere. This is not just something with the Balkans, you know, this is <laughs> this was one area that I went into. But yeah, so then you see this these things are actually the same topics with the body and with, with geographical locations. Okay, just to be clear, are you Jewish? Yeah. Just wondering, because, you know, oftentimes when you see artists working with things like Jewish history and this kind of stuff, there's some personal connection to it. Mm -hmm. There is a, I mean, yes, there is a personal connection, but I, I don't even know that it's so relevant necessarily because my work is not about my, my own family or my own story. And it is also not only about that situation. It is really a human topic. You know, there's so many instances of erasure of subcultures of society and yeah, systems of extermination or, you know, and then these uh, erased histories that present day realities are built on top of. And so actually the, the labeling of me as a Jewish artist who deals with Jewish topics or Jewish history has actually been something frustrating, you know, because I absolutely consider it to be human simply. Yes, but the art world loves putting us all into pigeonholes and defining us. Yeah, well, the world, the world likes that. <laughs> not just the art world. I know, but yeah. the podcast is not about the whole world. It's just about the art world. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I just also wanted to add one thing about, yes, a, t a large topic at the moment is uh, facts of violence is a body of work that is still developing that was exhibited at my gallery last year in Berlin that was also exhibited in, in Sweden at the Museum of Sundsvall last year. But what I'm really primarily interested in uh, with that body of work is more psychological violence rather than physical violence. So this is another big topic of interest is where is violence actually manifesting itself in ways that are very dif difficult to distinguish and difficult to define and actually go uh, often go unnoticed. Everywhere, all, mm -hmm. all, every day. Yeah, exactly. Now, you said my exhibited in my gallery are you represented by a gallery yes i'm represented by a gallery quadrat in berlin again going back to sort of the business of all of this like so how does that work they you know do you, do you give them 
uh, like some of your videos to sell or some of your pieces. I saw one one of the performances where you were rubbing your face on canvases kind mm -hmm. of thing. So like, so do they sort of sell the documentation slash objects and that are manifested from your performances or how does yeah. that all work? Yeah, I mean, the gallery has hosted several performances, but also exhibited the work that results from performances, either the video works or the objects that result from performances, installations. I worked with pillows quite a bit, for example. So like the burnt pillows from performances or the pieces of glass, I'm sorry, mirrors that I um, built a structure of mirrors around the body and all of that sort of thing, yes. <laughs> Going back, because I'm still fascinated by grant writing and fundraising and all this stuff, what were your experiences with trying to do crowdfunding? Because I asked this because like, over the years, I've thought about doing it off and on, and I've talked to people who've thought about doing it, and I've talked to people who have succeeded at it and people who have failed at it as far as receiving the funding, sort of fulfilling their, their goal. So what were your experiences with working with that kind of thing? Because I feel like crowdfunding is a bit different than patron funding or sort of going into the art world and ask for funding versus going to the entire world and ask for funding. Yeah, yeah, it, it is different. Although the one of the ways that I found it, it was possible to be successful was by going into every world. <laughs> you know, also like maybe sponsors who were just sponsoring yeah, uh, I don't know. It it was sort of like I treated every sponsor equally, actually. In in that one, it was um, it was great for having uh, visibility, and there were a lot of people who wanted to support the project who don't have a lot of money, and you know, it's like, <laughs> and so people could contribute small amounts that went a pretty long way, and but then through that crowdfunding, I was also able to access or build relationships with larger scale sponsors that continued later. So you leveraged sort of saying, I got this funded, and then you went to other funders and say, I've already received this funding, and then sought out additional funding? Sure, that happened. Yeah. But what I mean, what I meant more is that uh, some of the the sponsors from this project, we stayed in contact and then they continue to sponsor future projects, but all, you know, this kind of private philanthropy. Yeah. Building your network is incredibly important. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I feel like you have a wealth of sort of things that you want the world to talk about having seen your artwork. Are they as impactful on people as you hope they are? Sometimes yes, and sometimes no. <laughs> I mean, the thing is that I actually consider kind of every kind of engagement to be important with what I do. So even if there's a performance where people are like, trying to distract you or mocking or maybe it even you know it, it can it can provoke all sorts of things i don't know all sorts of ways of people being uncomfortable or trying to interfere but even when this happens it's like there there's been such an engagement 
of their attention and it has inevitably caused thinking you know, or reaction of some sort, thinking or emotional reaction, you know. And this is actually like, it's to take people out of what is assumed, you know, to question what is absolutely assumed, what is routine, what is. And so I consider that also to be successful. And then, yes, there's sometimes when uh, conversations go deeper in directions that I can really dive into. And oftentimes what happens from more detailed conversations is that I learn new things about my work <laughs> because it's, um, I mean, I'm very interested in psychology and I do really believe that creative production is actually an expression of the unconscious coupled with an expression of the con consciousness, of course, but a huge amount can be learned about the unconscious through, yeah, following the intuition with creative production. And so I think I said earlier that I don't, I don't ever tell people what to think. I talk about the topics that are referenced, but every single interpretation is valid. And very often from interpretations that I had not been consciously aware of, I will learn something. Along that line, actually, something sort of dawned on me, which was, have there been any things that may have gone wrong? The, the, what I'm leading to by that question is, is sort of, if there's a young artist listening to this podcast, what would you tell them to either do in whatever professional or conceptual manners to build their careers, or from your own experiences, anything that maybe you overdid something, stepped over a line, or made a mistake that you would try to steer them away from in order to have a more successful career no i think uh i think actually what i would say is kind of embrace whatever feels like mistakes <laughs> because there's i mean well with performance work in my opinion there shouldn't be there shouldn't be any censorship or you know whatever happens it is part of the work this is also what differentiates it from theater no, the only thing I would I would um, advise to be cautious about is becoming too overtaken by uh, the pressure to fundraise, that it might also change how you feel about your work. It, that it can also it can cause one to gradually, you know, in a way that maybe you can't even perceive, but it can, yeah, cause one to lose some integrity in their own work and their relationship to their work. So just to be cautious of this. <laughs> Doing all that kind of stuff, can it can eat at your soul. I mean, it's it's it creates yeah. anxiety, fear, uh, concerns about your own value as a creative person. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. don't give me, you know, I'm saying this from a point of my own experiences because <laughs> like I have applied for grants and residencies and all these things my entire career and I am horrible at receiving them. Like <sighs> I cannot seem to write a grant to save my life. Um, so, I mean, these kinds of things can, can crush people. Like you, you, there's mm -hmm. a certain amount of a thick skin that you have to have and a sort of a faith and a belief in yourself. Yeah. But, but there is a line. Yeah. I mean, so for the project I did in the Balkans, I actually attempted and failed to fundraise for two years with that project. And then I did the crowdfunding campaign. So that really did get a momentum going. But yeah, I got so many rejections in that time period. And then it really, it was actually very successful in the end. 
So, I mean, when I tell people that now, when they see what the project became, they can't really believe it. But yeah, just, um, it doesn't really mean anything, the rejections. But it's also, it is a matter also of like, I mean, it doesn't mean anything about like the value of the project is what I'm saying. But I think that, yeah, the thing is with fundraising, you have to decide what is strategically, what are the points to emphasize and what is the way to put them into terms so that they are like appropriate and persuasive and convincing and also give a very clear significance socially for the project because that's very often what needs to be seen for funding context. And so presenting these arguments sometimes are just, it's hard to get that voice out of your head then when you're producing the work. And those that shouldn't be in the head when you produce it. In a Europe, I find that oftentimes, and maybe this is something that is generally true with performance work that I just haven't experienced, is that you have to have a clear idea of your intention ahead of time in order to request funding or support or whatever. Um, whereas, like in my field, you know, I'm a photographer. I can just go take pictures and then sell those pictures or make a book of it to then fund my next project or whatever. So like, there are ways that, uh, you know, I have an object-based thing that can be sold or whatever. Whereas performance art, you really, really have to have a very clear vision prior to even approaching anybody or requesting anything in a very different way than most other mediums. I mean, maybe that's true. Yeah, with some, for example, running on empty, the example I gave with that, it needed to be very concrete and I needed to provide budget plans even in order to get the funding. But yeah, there's plenty of times when one just has an invitation from a curator, from a festival, from an institution, from a gallery where, you know, I like to work more with these projects where like I actually have a, like a trusted and substantial relationship with the curator, the organizer, the, you know, with the context somehow. And then there's just a trust. There has to be a trust in your own artistic, in the artistic practice of the person who has been invited to make something. And then that trust and that freedom is, it feels very good. <laughs> and I think that those are the collaborations that are, yeah, it, it's very important in those contexts to, to have that freedom and to feel like the people who you're working with really have confidence in you. So you work with curators often. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I also recently curated my first exhibition. I, I liked it. I like curating. <laughs> You know, I come again, come from sort of the rather straightforward background of sort of art, put it in a gallery, sell it kind of thing. So, like the idea of working collaboratively with curators is something that has come up more and more with all mediums of art these days, where curators oftentimes are the sort of negotiators that help you find spaces or help you find um, funding or patrons or whatever. And so they seem to be becoming more and more important. Yeah, I don't know if that's uh, if that's new for them to, but but in any case, yes. And I mean, a good gallerist also has that role. 
yeah, I'm very lucky with my gallerist that there there is the sense of teamwork. It's like, okay, there's this concept, like what can what can be done to support this? Okay, there's this opportunity. How can we pursue this? Okay, there's this work. How can we promote this together? You know, how can we work together to do this? But yeah, so, and I found that with like, yeah, with my current gallerist, for example, and then other curators, that I've worked with in projects that are traveling. I mean, they're, yeah, exactly. They are developing a concept and invited or applying to work in different contexts and then inviting us, <laughs> the artists. Okay, I'm, within that, I have a question because you talked about sort of the uh, doing multiple things around thing. How long does it take you to make a uh, performance. So, like, can you, are they very fast and intuitive, or you know, do they take long amount of planning and, and funding? And, and you know, so like, are they a weekend or a week, or are they years? Sometimes years. I think I'm always a little bit annoyed with myself that I often have <laughs> my concepts are just like, oh, they they need a lot. <laughs> Yeah, you could make easier works, really. You don't have to go that deep. <laughs> yeah, no, but sometimes I do. Sometimes I do. Like, for example, this piece with the ice pillows. I mean, I will always put a lot of time, a lot of time into because the thing is that I have ideas usually with an image. I see a still image, and then I it's very important for me to create this aesthetic with the works. And so I'll put a lot of time into it. And with the ice pillows, it yeah, it took a lot of time with all of the, I needed to have exactly the right size and the right shape. And it was so important. My pillows, my pillows were so important. <laughs> well, did you plan it like so that they, it was the right volume of ice in the right proportion so that it was completely melted after one hour? Uh, no, no, it wasn't melted, actually. It's it's interesting that after the one hour, you can see a kind of hole where my head was. <laughs> no, it, it would like, it would melt over time. And that sort of thing, I wouldn't want to control so much, but I would want to control, in that case, like the shape of the pillow was really important to me, the, the shape and the size, because that's like, yeah, that was very important. And then when I work with real pillows, I mean, ones that are not made of ice, that also is like the texture, uh, the way that it, it that it responds to burning, because I burn often with the iron, the way the different textiles respond to it. All those things are usually things that I'll test out before, but then what actually happens in the performance, it has to have room for things that are not at all controlled and not at all known. One thing, I was watching a couple of videos of some of your performances before we got on, and I was wondering about your choices, well, basically your choices of everything, but specifically <laughs> what I was noticing was like your choices of your wardrobe, of what you wore during the performances, like how much planning and thought and, and ideas do you put behind, I mean, we can start with wardrobe, but basically it's like every element, because I feel like when you work conceptually and in some a slightly abstracted metaphorical way, every little detail becomes exponentially more important. In my style, yes, I put a lot of a lot of effort 
maybe not even, I don't even really understand consciously why this is so important, but I have the intuition about it. I know it's important and I put a lot of effort into all of these details. And this is my style, but there's a lot of performance work also that I really respect that is more guerrilla style without, without any of these preparations and it's very, very strong. I was offered a, a flat in Berlin uh, that I could use as a studio and a project space. And so I wanted to fill it with, with different, yeah, with artists, with, crea with creativity, with experimentation, with performance, also with site-specific artwork, installation-based, whatever. And I curated my first exhibition there. And this has been a, a really important part of my practice right now because I've put, especially in times of corona and uh, social distancing, I could put all of my energy into that space and working with artists. Every artist had a separate room, actually, so we never had to get close. Uh, the opening was live streamed. The artist talks were live streamed. And that was really fantastic, actually. It's, it's interesting what happens with art also when everything has to be live streamed, but there's uh, an urgency to the situation. And there was also a certain intimacy that developed like with the artists also understanding and experiencing each other's works. And so that project is, yeah, is important. And it's something that I didn't have any funding for. And all of the artists involved also were very resourceful just to create like low budget things. And we all believed in it. So came together and made something. And that project is also in cooperation with my gallery. So the gallery works with me also on projects that are purely for the love of art, not for financial gain. <laughs> but yeah, like projects that are really meaningful without commercial intentions. Now, you said you, you used live streaming. I've been fascinated with the uptick in, you know, Facebook Live, Instagram Live, all these different sort of live things that are going on. So like, how did that work for you? Like, how did that translate? And did you feel like it was better, worse? What, what kind of you know, feedback did you receive from translating something that was meant to be experienced in person into something virtual? I actually really liked it with this project. It was, to me, it felt very complete. But there are some things, I mean, and it felt complete because... Yeah, the artists could could speak about their own work if they wanted to, but if not, the work would speak for itself. But also because I don't, there is just a different kind of intimacy, I think, with the live stream. It's more accessible for people because it isn't like a big social event in a way. It's accessible more internationally. And it, with intimacy, I also mean like with the actual artwork itself, because so often these big art openings can be very far removed from the work. It becomes about the networking and it becomes about all of the socializing and also having fun and getting drunk and all of that. And so it was somehow like the people who came to see the exhibition by appointment really had an interest and a commitment to seeing the show. And then people could focus more on the work without the all of the distractions of the event. 
the only thing is that like one of the artists had a, a interactive installation on the toilet. It was fantastic. He had a contact microphone on the toilet and it was like a interactive sound installation. And it was a pity that people couldn't interact with that because that was difficult to communicate via live stream, but everything else I felt very good about. And I watched several performances of friends, not in my project, but in other uh, spaces during the quarantine time. And actually one of them, I even thought like, wow, this is so much better with the live stream. I wouldn't, this would not be so powerful if I were there in person. So I think it can be very effective. Well, I would imagine like there's an ability for you to control the attention of the viewer to certain aspects of whatever's going on that mm. you may not have the ability to do when there's like an audience at a certain distance away yeah. so you can zoom in on things you can go close to things you can focus their attention on a very particular element at a particular time it's almost a little bit more like making a film mm -hmm. than it is necessarily a performance per se yeah no that's true actually of course it is shown through the eyes of the person shooting it when it comes to doing performative work, so it could be making a video or whatever, something time-based, let's say, mm -hmm. you have to write these grants. I hate having to translate my artwork that I've produced, which I put a lot of time, effort, and decades of, of practice and all this into being able to produce that thing into words that somehow convince somebody that the, that this project is interesting to them and to society and worthy of their money and their support and their name and being attached yeah. to it like how do you convince people of that or is it convincing people of that or is it just being sincere and honest and hoping that they connect Okay, so when I was when I was under so much pressure to do the crowdfunding campaign, I felt under pressure to convince and to do whatever it would take to convince. And I think that was really why that was so stressful for me and I didn't feel like it was positive for my work is because it didn't feel sincere enough. It was more about strategy. And actually, I hate that. So now when I say that I don't do many applications, I will do the applications where I know that I can be sincere and it will be received for what it is. And of course, you have to word things well and you have to, you know, sure, but it's really still like you're not talking any bullshit. And what I what I didn't like with the crowdfunding campaign is of course like I'm I'm dealing with the topic of Jewish history and an effective way to get money and I felt pressured from a lot of people was to pull on the emotional strings about the tragedy of the Holocaust. And yes, I could get a lot of money that way, but I absolutely didn't want to do it. But the, the, the struggle of fighting that pressure was exhausting. I think it's just a matter of like feeling it out. When does it feel like you're really losing the integrity of something? And when does it feel like, okay, this is just something I have to do, but I'm still being very honest with myself. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you just like, okay, see, cause I had this pet peeve. <laughs> Go mm -hmm. Take this back a step. I have this pet peeve. I really wish that the art world, so we're talking, I'm talking the whole world because of course I've lived in the United States and Europe and Middle East, all this because I've had a couple experiences with this. 
I wish that the art world would come up with a common vernacular or vocabulary to make it so that like if because for instance in certain parts of the world there are things called travel grants i'm mm -hmm. sure you've applied for these other parts of the world they call them mobility grants and other parts of the world they call them other things and so like i wish that there would just come up with a certain set of common words that we all knew what we were looking for because like even when it came down to doing a a Google search to try and find funding for, let's say, a travel grant, certain parts of the world don't use the term travel grant. And so then I had to mm -hmm. learn what word they use, mobility grants, et cetera, mm -hmm. to then be able to search in that part of the world. So like, I wish that they could come up with some consistency because I feel like that would make the f seeking of f funding and grants and support a little bit easier yeah yeah no i can understand that yeah i think also it, there isn't a way that the information is like so consistently readily available usually i found out about through word of mouth and recommendations from people i knew and the networking and i found out but i think also that that like it kind of protects like okay this foundation not everybody knows about it. they don't get thousands of applications that can work as well to one's advantage. Yeah. 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 Okay, one last question before we wrap this up. How is it being an expat artist in Berlin? I feel very comfortable. I mean, I feel uncomfortable in the US, so. <laughs> but there's a lot, there's a lot of expats from many different places here. Or maybe not expats, but men, like many people who come from New York or, you know, artists also who don't necessarily have the commitment or like the seriousness or, you know, so uh, they can be a little bit annoying. <laughs> I don't identify so much with other expats. No, but I don't know. Like it's, it's an interesting situation of being somehow integrated and completely not integrated, you know, so... I, I do know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Berlin is marvelous in so many ways. I, from what I hear, I actually did a, a podcast with this guy, Bruno, who was a curator. And he, he said that, like, it's a fabulous place to be a practicing artist. It mm -hmm. is, there are lots of good funding. There's lots of great spaces. There's lots of, you know, really great stuff for being an artist. But being a gallery or being an institution, it's a very difficult city to be in. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so a lot of people say about Berlin that it's poor but sexy. That is literally verbatim what he said, yes. Oh, yes, yes. Okay, yes, it's quite known. But yes, I mean, it's fantastic for studio work and it's fantastic for, you know, for ideas and for communication and everything. It's very hard to earn money here. <laughs> So where so then most of your income co comes from other places because you had mentioned Sweden and a couple other places that you've been working. Yeah, yeah, actually, like yeah, Sweden absolutely, and I did a project in Chicago recently, September of last year, and I find actually that projects that I do in Romania, there's a there's it's kind of culturally accepted that artists are paid for their work in Romania, which is, yeah, quite revolutionary. It's not culturally accepted <laughs> in Germany or in the US. But so when yes. I do projects there, I mean, even for an exhibition, I'm paid an exhibition fee, I'm paid for performances. And I mean, sales can happen anywhere, but 
Romania is actually very, uh, very supportive in this way. It's great. <laughs> very nice. All right. Okay. Thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure. <laughs>